This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. General Ventilator Setup by Nancy Craig. Hello, I'm Nancy Craig. I'm one of the respiratory therapists here at Children's Hospital in Boston, and I'm here to review some of the general setups of an ICU ventilator. Ventilator Preparation. This first chapter will demonstrate how to attach the components of a ventilator prior to patient use. Most of the ventilators will have some sort of an expiratory filter for exhaled gases. The humidifier that all ICU ventilators will have to warm up the gas, deliver humidity to the patient. The tubing is either disposable or non-disposable. If it's disposable, it will be thrown away after each patient uh, use. If it's non-disposable, it will be sent to be cleaned. The inspiratory end of the ventilator is connected to the humidifier. The expiratory end is connected to that expiratory filter. And there is a piece of tubing that goes from the inspiratory end of the ventilator to the top of the humidifier. The circuit then will require a temperature probe for use with the humidifier, which monitors the temperature back at the ventilator and then close to the patient's airway. Now I'm going to show you um, how to turn the ventilator on and hook it up to the patient. All ICU ventilators, turn it around here, require a power source. Most of them do have batteries, but the power supply is fairly limited. And they all will require a high pressure oxygen source. This particular ventilator has an air compressor, so it doesn't necessarily need a high pressure air source. If your ventilator does not have a compressor for it to function, you'll need a, you'll need a high pressure air hose as well. The oxygen and the air get hooked up to a 50 PSI source. The power knobs generally on the back of the machine. High pressure leak test. When powering up a ventilator, um, it will typically ask you to perform a high pressure leak test so that we make sure that the ventilator is um, good to go before placing on a patient. I'm going to perform an EST, which is a high pressure leak test to make sure that the, the tubing um, has no leaks. The ventilator um, instructs you to make sure that you're not on a patient, that your Y is capped and it will um, prompt you to proceed with the high pressure test. Here the extended system test is checking for leaks in the circuit. It's performing um, 
a circuit compliance test to see what, you know, what the distensibility of the tubing is, and it's also performing a test of the oxygen sensor. If there are any leaks in the circuit, then the ventilator will not pass its EST. Um, if it does not pass its extended system test, then we'll systematically go through and see where the sources of leaks may be. Those leaks may be in the humidifier. They may be in some of the connections to the ventilator. Or it might be that the leaks are in the circuit itself. You see there's lots of places where pieces are put together that could be prone to leaks. Once your ventilator has passed the test and you are assured of its integrity, um, then we can continue on. This particular ventilator asks you to input a patient weight so that it can figure out some calculations related to tidal volume. Initial ventilator settings. After the patient is intubated, there's a period of time where the patient is manually ventilated and pressure is monitored so that you can have a sense of how much pressure it takes to visibly move the chest. So here it's taking about 25 centimeters of water pressure to move the chest. So that is where I will start my ventilator initially. I have chose a, chosen a pressure control mode for this patient that's just been intubated. And I'm going to set some just sort of uh, initial settings before placing the patient on the ventilator. So on this ventilator, typically we start, depending on the um, disease state of the patient, um, at 5 of P. To set my pressure, I'm going to, as I said, it took about 25 centimeters to move the chest. On this ventilator, I'm setting a change in pressure. So I'm going to start here at 25 of PIP and 5 of PEEP. The rate is generally based on the size of your patient. This is a smaller patient, so I'm going to start with a higher rate, something like 18. Uh, inspiratory times, again, depending on the size of the patient, in the range of about half a second to about 0.8 seconds. Um, my patient is not breathing, but I'll add a little bit of pressure support ventilation just in case there is a spontaneous effort. And that amount of pressure support is generally initially based on the size of the endotracheal tube. I will set a flow trigger here so that the ventilator and the patient are interacting with each other in terms of spontaneous breathing. And after a patient is initially intubated, tip it's fairly typical to start the fraction of inspired oxygen at 100%. So now I'm ready to pace, place the ventilator on the patient. End tidal CO2 monitoring. Ventilator is ready to go. I'm going to actually attach the end tidal CO2 monitor next. This is the cable to monitor end tidal CO2, and this is the adapter that gets fit onto the airway. Depending on the patient's size, you'll have a different size end tidal CO2 monitor. The adapter is then positioned between the ventilator circuit and the airway of the patient. The end-tidal CO2 monitor is placed in line with the ventilator circuit to not only non-invasively monitor end-tidal CO2, but also to monitor the integrity of the airway. When I'm monitoring end-tidal CO2, I'm looking at not only the value itself, but also the shape of the end-tidal capnogram. So I should see a nice exhaled wave 
that flattens out at the top to know that my patient is fully exhaling. If there is a sudden loss of end tidal CO2, that will alert me to a problem with the integrity of the endotracheal tube. The first thing I would do is to make sure that the ventilator components are hooked up to the airway. If they're hooked up to the airway and I still do not have an end tidal CO2 tracing, then the, the next thing I would assume is that I've lost the endotracheal tube from the patient. Initial patient assessment. When I initially place the ventilator circuit on the patient's endotracheal tube, I'm looking immediately for chest rise. Here I'm seeing the, the patient's um, chest is visibly rising, and then I come back to the ventilator to look at some of my parameters. I would like to set a goal for mechanical breaths of about 8 to 10 cc's per kilogram, um, so that is where I'm monitoring here. So I'm just a little bit below my target, but looks like the patient is doing okay right now. Ventilator alarms. Once I have established the patient on the ventilator and I'm happy with the way the patient looks, then I'm going to um, set my alarms on the ventilator. The alarm screen is accessed here. Um, and these alarms are fairly typical of all ICU ventilators. Um, I would, I'm going to want to st uh, set a high respiratory rate so that I am alerted to a change in the patient's um, condition in terms of how fast they're breathing. Typically, um, the patient is not breathing now. You would set that alarm at about twice what the respiratory rate is. So here I'm going to set it just around twice of the rate of 18. The next very important alarm limits are the low and high minute ventilation alarms. I'm going to take you back to this screen. And remember that minute ventilation is a calculation of respiratory rate times tidal volume. So on this ventilator, I will set a low and high minute ventilation to alert me to some change in the patient's condition in terms of monitored tidal volumes. Then I'm going to set it roughly half for the lower limit and twice for the upper limit. Then it's very important to set a low peak pressure in case there is a leak in the circuit and the uh, pressure does not reach what is set, then the, alar the alarm will alert you to a low pressure situation. And this I set somewhere between the PEEP and the peak inspiratory pressure. And then the next alarm is the high peak pressure. This is a very important alarm as well because this will alert um, the clinician to a change um, in peak pressure that's high, maybe an obstructed airway, a lot of secretions in the tube. If there's any reason that the peak pressure is higher than what you have set, you would want to troubleshoot that condition. That alarm is typically set about 5 to 10 above your monitored peak pressure. And then I'm going to set an apnea interval. The apnea interval is going to be based on the size of your patient. So uh, if your patient is not on a rate and breathing all on their own, then I would want to be alerted to uh, a time uh, uh, pause in spontaneous respirations. On uh, a bigger patient, I might set it around 20 seconds. On a smaller patient, I might set it closer to 10 seconds. So I, 
if my apnea interval alarms, then I know that there's a period of time that the patient has not made a spontaneous effort. On this ventilator, it will, uh, if the apnea interval alarms, it will switch to backup ventilation. I have a low peep alarm, which alerts me to potentially a leak in the circuit and I'm not maintaining a baseline pressure, so I will typically set that about two below my set peep. The other two alarms I um, set are low end tidal CO2 and high end tidal CO2. Um, a low end tidal CO2 may alert me to, um, you know, a situation where uh, the patient's uh, status is improving or they're breathing faster and their end tidal CO2 is a little bit lower, or if they're not uh, getting an adequate amount of ventilation and their end tidal CO2 rises, I would want to know that as well. Assessment and monitoring. There should be an assessment of the monitored parameters and alarm settings at least every three to four hours. So on this patient, I'm in a pressure control mode, so I'm going to very closely monitor the exhaled monitor, the exhaled tidal volume parameters. And I'm going to set my alarms to alert me if my tidal volume parameters are lower. In a volume targeted mode, then I'm going to closely monitor my peak inspiratory pressures because that value will change and I will closely monitor and alarm for a high peak inspiratory pressure. Depending on the severity of the patient and depending on the frequency by which you're making changes in the parameters on the ventilator will, will determine if you would be doing an assessment more frequently. In addition to the parameters that I'm monitoring on the ventilator, uh, when I do an assessment of the patient, I'm going to be monitoring breath sounds, the integrity of the airway in terms of its patency, and where it is fixed uh, on the patient in terms of uh, airway position. And I'll be the patient will be continuously on a monitor, uh, monitoring heart rate, blood pressure, and I'll be looking at the oxygen saturations as a guide for my uh, FiO2. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.